want to say that so many times we suppress the negative emotions because we believe that we're that they're they're bad. Yeah, they're bad for us. The problem with suppressing negative emotions is that you suppress all emotions. You don't get to pick and choose which of the emotional experiences and expressions you have. So when people have a tendency to deny their feelings that are bad or unpleasant, um, they tend to limit their availability to experience positive emotions. Hey, welcome back to Normalize the Conversation. Today, I'm here with Dr. Natalie Dottillo. Natalie is a clinical and health psychologist, instructor at Harvard Med School, founder of Priority Wellness Coaching, and an expert in fields of mindset, motivation, and self-care. Today, Dr. Natalie joins us for a conversation on depression and treatment. Dr. Natalie, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you really? Great question. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. I think this is such an important conversation and it's just a pleasure to meet you and have this conversation with you today. How am I really? I'm tired. (laughs) You know how you get tired just like uh, we're like you're sleeping, but like it's just it's still not enough. There's just a lot on your plate that you're trying to juggle and sometimes it feels like um uh, you're coming up short. Yeah, I totally relate to that. I've been experiencing that too lately where you're just exhausted. And no mm-hmm. matter how much extra time you try to put into getting enough sleep or even mm-hmm. self-care, it just doesn't feel like enough. And then taking away from all that you have to do kind of just feels overwhelming in itself. I totally relate to that. Thank you so much for sharing. A lot of times when we ask the question, how are you? It's a greeting and we don't expect an answer. We don't want an answer and we don't feel like answering, honestly. So I always really appreciate when a guest is honest because that's the purpose of normalizing mental health is being honest with how we're feeling. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's a really important part of the conversation and you can be tired you can feel overwhelmed and still be well exactly it's not like either or so I think it's important to recognize that full spectrum of experience and that it's all normal and it's all part of being human and uh and all of us just doing the best we can and most people that I've talked to in the recent uh, months that's the general consensus we're just tired (laughs) you know so you're in good company if if you're feeling that way it is so true that this is a really important part of normalizing the conversation and understanding that you can be tired and still feel good. I think a lot of people think they can't coexist, that you can only feel one way. And we see that a lot with depression. Jumping into the topic, there are so many misconceptions out there. So as someone who works primarily with adults diagnosed with depression, we're going to talk about some of those misconceptions today. So first, the root of depression is so misunderstood. People believe they have to face severe loss and tragedy to develop any form of depression. But where does depression actually manifest from? Mm -hmm. That's such a great question. Everybody's susceptible to depression. So we're all sort of vulnerable to experiencing bouts of depression. Um, And it doesn't represent a weakness on anybody's part. 
we think about depression um, from a, what we call a biopsychosocial perspective or a biopsychosocial conceptualization. And that helps us understand and break down the root causes of the particular depression that a person is experiencing. And that also informs our treatment plan. So there are biological contributors to depression, psychological contributors to depression, and social contributors to depression. And the biological ones consist of genetic uh, risk factors that some people are born with. If you have a family history of depression, you might fall into that category. Um, or other biological contributors like neurotransmitters, um, uh, the neurochemical ways that we understand depression and um, deficiencies in that system. Um, we usually address those with medication. That's typically how we might address a biologically based depression. I work mostly with folks who are struggling with psychological or social bases of depression and psychological contributors to depression include a couple of things. The way you're thinking and the ways that our thoughts can contribute to how we feel better or worse and the things that we're doing. So the ways in which our behavior can either contribute to how we're feeling one way or the other. And then the social pieces, of course, and those are usually linked to events in our life. These could be also social relationships and, and um, struggle in that area. But I like to think about it as circumstances and situational depressions that we're all subject to from time to time. That is such an amazing answer when you talk about depression, because we often, like we said, we think it's only because of some kind of tragedy that would cause depression. But like you said, biological factors, psychological factors, and social factors. And zooming in on psychological factors, there are so many things that can attribute to that. And the way we're thinking, the way we talk to ourselves matters. And we tend to forget that. We are such critics of ourselves. And mm -hmm. if a friend of ours was feeling that way and they opened up to us, we would be so supportive. We would tell them how much we love them and how great they are. But when it's to ourselves, we're so mean. Mm -hmm. We just beat down on ourselves more and more. Like, what's wrong with me for feeling this way? I am being dramatic. I'm being crazy. I'm just, something's wrong with me. I can't handle this anymore. And we just kind of beat ourselves down and down and down. Mm -hmm. So talking about that psychological factor is so important. And then social factors, relationships. And when like relationships end, or when the boundaries of relationship changes, or just the relationship starts to fade or change in a different way, and we don't know why or what caused it, it can really lead to symptoms of depression. So thank you so much for sharing those different causes with us. Social stressors and social adversity or you know, the relate the way that our relationships impact our emotional health and well-being. So the emotional pain that we experience when relationships change is very real. You know, and I think sometimes we beat ourselves up because we think we should be stronger um, or that we shouldn't be feeling this way or that there's something wrong with us. And I think that's also really, it also really highlights the importance of realizing that there are other factors to consider when it comes to depression. Because what people will often think is, um, what's wrong with me? Like nothing or uh, nothing has happened. Why am I feeling this way? I can't point to any event in my life that has taken place that might cause me to feel this badly. So like, 
what, you know, what's that about? And it becomes very confusing and very frustrating and then people feel guilty because they feel bad, but they don't really have a quote reason to. Yes, exactly. When we don't know where it comes from, it's so frustrating. And like you said, overwhelming and confusing because you don't understand what's happening. You don't understand why you're starting to deal with these symptoms. You don't even understand what depression is and why is it something that you may be experiencing. So another Mm -hmm. common misconception is that idea that depression is the same thing as being sad or having thoughts of suicide or planning a suicide attempt. And that's what depression is. So if that's depression, then I am depressed or I'm not depressed. And we kind of identify Mm -hmm. it just based on those two ideas. But there are so many different forms of depression and they look different for everyone. So would you mind talking a little bit about those subtypes of depression? Mm -hmm. When it comes to feeling sadness, I actually think about that as a very healthy emotion to feel. And that that doesn't even typically show up as the most problematic feature in depression. You know, we don't like to feel sad, but sad is... um, can be a very healthy emotion to feel for very good reason. What happens with, um, with depression is that you almost feel nothing at all. So it's sort of the absence of any type of emotion. It's feeling really numb or even empty. And that's a very distressing experience. I would actually even prefer sadness over that. Um, so that's one aspect. And, and the loss of pleasure, like not really enjoying anything in life or having anything to look forward to, feeling really helpless about your situation is problematic. And sometimes the helplessness will continue. Helplessness is it doesn't seem to be that anything I do makes a difference. Um, Hopelessness is the idea that nothing I ever do will make a difference. And then you begin to feel apathetic. So there's like this continuum in this spectrum of experience and working with a professional who can assess kind of where you are in that process is is really beneficial. Uh, And the sooner you can begin addressing some of those symptoms, the better, obviously. The different types of depression, if you think about subtypes of depression, I don't know if people realize there are different types of depression, they often are characterized by how frequently they occur. So a person can have a depressive episode, a clinical depression or a major depressive episode one time and never happens again. There are people for whom it's a recurrent issue. So they'll have it once and then they'll be prone to flare ups um, and, uh, and it's more chronic. There's also a low-grade depression, a type of depression we call dysthymia or persistent depressive disorder, which is sort of a a low-grade or mild depression kind of um, chronically. Um, There's also postpartum depression, which most people know about, and there's even a psychotic depression. So it just depends on the nature of the symptoms, um, the frequency, and um, the treatment. I really want to go back real quick to the first thing you said that sadness is a good emotion because sometimes we forget that we're human and we are vulnerable to all emotions and that's healthy. Emotions are healthy. Experiencing a range of emotions emotions is healthy because you need to release, whether it's releasing the joy and burst of happiness within you or that burst of sadness or anger or frustration it's all important and it's all equally important. And 
one isn't necessarily better than the other because without one, you don't have the other. And I just love, love, love that you brought that up. But so I was going to say that so many times we suppress the negative emotions because we believe that we're, that they're, they're bad. Yeah. They're bad for us. The problem with suppressing negative emotions is that you suppress all emotions. You don't get to pick and choose which of the emotional experiences and expressions you have. So when people have a tendency to deny their feelings that are bad or unpleasant, um, they tend to limit their availability to experience positive emotions. Yeah. So I think it's a really important point. And I just wanted to emphasize that. Yes, that is so true. And then when we suppress our emotions, it tends to come out in other ways. And it comes out later on in a way that may not be connected. And then we may be confused on why we had a certain outburst or why it was directed at someone that maybe it wasn't intended for. So by suppressing our emotions, we're really harming ourselves and causing ourselves future distress. Mm -hmm. Yep. I say, feel all the feels, (laughs) feel them all. And so therapy is not about feeling better. This is what I tell people. It's about getting better at feeling so that you feel like you have some agency or mastery when it comes to um, emotional management, Um, having a better sense of you know, what they feel like and how difficult they are to tolerate and what you can apply, what kind of skills or strategies or regulation you can, uh, uh, um, tips you can apply to help better, just feel better about your feelings. Exactly. A lot of times, well, most of the time, we're not taught about coping mechanisms, especially at a young age. We're not taught about how to regulate our emotions, how to understand our emotions, identify them, how to manage them. We're not taught really any of that. So as we start to experience experience them, it feels confusing. It feels overwhelming because we have very little knowledge about them all. Mm -hmm. And we live in a society where there's a stigma on those negative emotions or those emotions we don't want to feel. So we feel like those make us weak and we have to suppress them. And it's just overwhelming. And then a lot of people can't access therapy, whether it's because there is a high demand and a short supply, whether it's financial reasons, whether it's infrastructure reasons, where there's not a local therapy office, or they don't have the bandwidth to be able to do online therapy. So there's a lot of times where therapy is thought of as the only option, but it's completely inaccessible. So then people start to feel really helpless. And then they feel like they don't know what to do, or sometimes they overload on self-care to try to make up for it. So before we jump too far into therapy and treatment, can we talk a little bit about what self-care is and maybe what are some of the boundaries for what self-care and how much it can do for you? Well, I'm a, 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 an advocate, a proponent of self-care. I study self-care be- like behavior and people and attitudes and then barriers to self-care. So we have a, so we can develop a better understanding and a more evidence-based understanding of what self-care is. So a lot of people talk about self-care and I think that's great. Um, and I think the, um, the original purpose of self-care was more medically focused. So it was to give um, people, empower people to take care of themselves um, without having to rely on their doctor or, or their healthcare provider 
um, to, to do that. So taking their health matters into their own hands, whether that was better understanding their medication regimen, better understanding what kind of lifestyle modifications they might want to make to best support their health and to really feel um, empowered to take care of themselves. It has shifted a little bit, as you probably know, and, it, and, and so a lot of self-care um, discussions revolve around um, you know, pampering and doing like taking some me time and really taking care of yourself. And I think that is all well and good as well. But I think we also think about self-care backwards. We often think about applying it after we need it or after we've, you know, hit a wall or when we realize that we need a break. And I think about self-care as preventative that it needs to be incorporated into your life on a regular basis as a way to stay healthy and stay well and prevent yourself from getting to the point where you like, I need a break. I'm at the end of my rope and I just need a break. So can we, you know, can we um, prevent you from getting there in the first place? And so what are evidence-based self-care activities? Well, we know that there are uh, a number of uh, self-care activities that work. Um, and these are things that I think most people are already familiar with, but this is exercise, it's sleep, it's social connection, it's gratitude and cultivating positive, positive emotions like gratitude and awe or curiosity. There's a lot of really good research on those um, topics. It's also um, play, making sure that you're make, you know, making time to have fun. Um, and to experience pleasure. That's a really important, uh, really important um, piece of prevention when it comes to depression. And then also meditation and um, nervous system regulation through breath work and things like that. So we know that those all work and helping people develop a personalized self-care plan is a big part of what I do. Okay, I love that because we don't focus enough on self-care because first of all, therapy and treatment is absolutely amazing, but if you're not applying anything outside of that office, you're really not getting as much out of it as you could be. So having that self-care routine in place to be there for you every single day is mm -hmm. so important, but as a preventative measure preventative. We are so reactive with everything mental health, whether it's therapy to seeking any kind of help to reaching out to self-care. We are so reactive. We don't really focus on the preventative and I just self-care is an amazing, amazing preventative tool because you're giving yourself the space to care for yourself, to love yourself, to show up for yourself. And one thing you said to me when we first connected was doing it with intention. A lot of times we do self-care as kind of like a mindless routine or we're just doing something because other people say it's good. They say like pampering is good and me time is good. So I should do that. But without the intention, mm -hmm. it really doesn't do much. Mm -hmm. Self-care, there's a really simple like definition that I use, which is it's self-care are the things that you know are good for you. They're the things that you say to yourself, it would be good for me to do this. This would be good for me. And so sometimes that's paying bills and sometimes that's doing chores and sometimes it's taking a, uh, an afternoon off and sometimes it's connecting with a friend or making a phone call or taking a walk or scheduling a massage. It would be good for me to do that. It's just making sure that you're tending to your needs too, but those needs change. So part of self-care practice is is 
regularly assessing, like, what are my needs? Like, how am I doing? What do I need? And most of the time, if you're asking yourself those two questions, how am I doing? And what do I need? You'll find that you're probably doing fine. You're doing fine most of the time. Um, and that, you know, maybe what you need is, uh, you know, a little bit of downtime, or maybe you need to eat some food or something. <laughs> um, maybe you need to take a walk or stretch or something. But just getting into the habit of asking yourself on a regular basis, how am I doing, gives you the opportunity to like step in sooner and take care of your needs sooner or prioritize those, uh, which I think is an important part. But the intention behind the activity is critical. It is really what makes self-care self-care. It's the deliberateness and the mindset that you bring to whatever activity you choose. And it, it could be five minutes. It could be 30 minutes. It could be several hours that you carve out to do some self-care. But it's the it's it's the recognition and, the, and that that's what you're doing. Exactly. How am I really checking in with yourself? How oh, am I really? Exactly. <laughs> that's a good question. Be honest. <laughs> listen to yourself. Truly listen to yourself. A lot of times we ignore our body and our mind giving us these warning signs. They're letting us know that we need help. We need support. We need something. Like you mm -hmm. said, it could be something as simple as food or stretching or walk, water. Water, <laughs> big one, I mean water. <laughs> we tend to ignore it until we don't feel well and we wait till we're completely burnt out, completely mm -hmm. overexhausted, where we almost can't function before we say, maybe I should do something for myself. But if we're checking in with ourselves regularly, we have that option to be preventative. So that is huge. But now going back to therapy and treatment, when someone is looking for treatment that may work for them, what exactly should they be looking for? The type of treatment that might work best for them? Well, there's a couple of ways that you could go about figuring it out. And, and it might require um, you know, consulting with your doctor or consulting with a mental health professional who can do an assessment with you, can assess your symptoms and then help develop a treatment plan. And the treatment plan might consist of medication. That's, that's one of the treatment options that are available and effective. It might consist of therapy in, in the form of like a one-on-one -on -one, um, counseling therapy. There are also group therapy options available. There are online therapy options available. There's a lot of self-directed um, uh, online programs that you can take. There's, uh, so it's, it's just a matter of a couple of things. Um, how, how much are your symptoms interfering with your life? Right? So are we talking about something that's mild to moderate, moderate to severe, or severe? And that will be one of the key deciding factors in which type of treatment to pursue. Yes, your symptoms and how they're interfering with your life is such an important piece. And a lot of times we think that there's just one standard protocol and that's it. And what worked for someone else is going to work for me, but with different symptoms, with different levels of interference, we'll create a different treatment plan. And that is normal. And it's okay to have a plan, treatment plan that's different from a friend or a loved one. Mm -hmm. But there are so many different types of therapy, psychotherapy, TMS, neurofeedback, cognitive behavioral. And what do you feel are like some of those most common types of depression treatment? And mm -hmm. when I'm 
starting to receive treatment, how do I know if this one is really right for me? How long do I keep trying it? And when do I say, you know what, it's time to change methods? Mm, it's such a great question. And I don't know if we have these types of conversations nearly enough with whoever you might be working with to um, on a treatment plan, whether that's a whether that's a mental health professional like a psychiatrist or a primary care physician who's helping to coordinate treatment. I think the other factors that are so important to consider is lifestyle, like what, you know, of the options that are available, which of these are you going to realistically be able to participate in? And the other is preference. Like you get a say in what you believe will be helpful for you. And you work in collaboration with a provider who can provide that treatment. So we make recommendations, but we're also taking into account what's realistic for a person and what, do, what would they prefer? So it may not be medication, maybe a non-medication based treatment or for a particular person, medication is the way to go. Some of the other treatments that you mentioned, so things like TMS and neurofeedback or biofeedback, those are a little bit more intensive types of treatment. And they're usually reserved for people who haven't done as well with some of the more um, less, those aren't in less intensive types of treatments. So, you know, we might start with something that's, that's fairly straightforward, like um, a behavior therapy or a cognitive behavior therapy or even talk therapy for some people and see um, how effective that is. And if there's a good response to that treatment, that may be it. If there's a less than desired response to that treatment, then you might add a medication um, or you might consult with a different um, provider, uh, a different type of therapist. There's, there's options. You shouldn't feel stuck. Exactly. There are so many options. And like you said, some of them are more intensive than others. And when we hear that, we think, well, I don't need that intensive treatment. I'm not that bad off. People are worse off than me. That's not me. That's not right for me. And we feel ashamed and we don't want it. So I always want to disclose when people talk about that, that I've been there. I tried talk therapy. I tried cognitive behavioral therapy. I tried medication and I wasn't finding a solution that worked for me. So I did end up trying neurofeedback therapy. And I did that three times a week plus talk therapy once a week. And it seems like a lot to so many people, but it was so helpful. So never be ashamed of reaching out and getting different types of help. And even if you need a more intensive treatment, that's okay. The goal is to help yourself, not to kind of try to hide behind it and not get the support you need. Because if you're going to therapy and it's not working for you, using a treatment plan that's not working for you, you're not helping yourself. And being there for yourself and listening to yourself is so important. But on the and, advocate, and advocating for yourself, yes. being able to say, I don't know if this is, I'm not really sure what to expect, but I'm not sure this is working for me and being able to speak up. I mean, I think that's a huge part of success in treatment. It can also be really difficult to do, um, especially if you're struggling with something like anxiety or depression, because, you know, the nature of those conditions um, can make us feel um, like we can't speak up. That, uh, that it won't make a difference if we do. And so it's, it's this vicious cycle that we try to, to break free of to help people recover. Exactly, advocating for yourself. And a lot of times we feel afraid because we don't know if we're right. The doctor mm -hmm. must know everything and they know a lot. They've gone through so much training and research, but they don't know what's inside your head if you're not telling them. Exactly, and another comment on the, the treatments that might occur multiple times a week. 
we go to the gym multiple times a week. I mean, when there's an important goal or health goal we're trying to achieve, it is something that we do pretty frequently. If it's something like the gym, that's a couple times a week at the least. Exactly. And we look at mental health in such a different way that we look at our physical health. I mean, we brush our teeth every day, twice a day. That's normal, but people are afraid to take their medication every day or people are afraid to go to therapy more than once a week or once a month or whatever they feel that standard is that people would be accepting of. So on the other side of this, being able to advocate for yourself is also being able to find a therapist that works for you because it's like dating. You might not find that one therapist right away. You might have to try out different therapists. So when you are looking for a therapist that's going to work for you, what are some of those questions you should ask yourself and the potential therapist to find that right match? This is such an important question. I actually wrote a few down so that I wouldn't forget um, when I was thinking about what would what are the, the questions that people should equip themselves with when they're trying to decide whether a therapist is right for them. And there are some obvious ones, maybe not obvious, but there are some more basic ones that are like, you know, how long have you been doing this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> What is your experience like? It's okay to ask those questions. I rarely get asked those questions, but I'd be happy to tell people about my training and how long I've been in practice. Um, and I, that may or may not make a difference for people, but I, I think it shows that you're thinking, um, you know, critically about the decision because it's an investment in yourself that you're willing and trying to make. Another one is just how much do you charge? Like knowing those basic things will help you decide whether or not that's a that's a, a route that you can take or that you can afford to take, whether you take insurance, those sorts of things. Then maybe asking about, you know, have you worked with many people who have similar circumstances to my own? And asking it in that way, in that way is kind of broad. It could be referring to my particular symptoms. It could be referring to my background. It could be referring to just sort of like more general, um, you know, what's your comfort level and experience working with people like me? Um, I think that's an important question to ask. Also, what are sessions like with you? What can I expect? Okay, and, and, and that will give you an idea of how structured those sessions are or not. You know, what uh, the expectations of, uh, between sessions. Um, that's, that's helpful to know up front as well, whether or not that's what you're looking for. How long do you think this course of treatment will last? And I think that's a really important question because it's not, it, it's not an open-ended situation. You know, evidence-based treatments have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so having, and even if you don't know exactly right off the bat how long a course of treatment will last, an experienced uh, like professional, mental health professional will have a sense of about how long treatment should take. And then you just go off of that. Um, and then also like, how should I best prepare for our meetings? What is it that, you know, what are, you know, what are the expectations that you have of me? Um, and how can I make the best use of our time together? Yes, these are incredible questions that so many people don't know is an option to ask. Yes. And we should be asking questions because we have a right to know. We have a right to know if we are going to be comfortable with this therapist, if we can afford this therapist, if we can feel safe with this therapist, and if they can feel safe with us and they're able to accommodate our needs and our wants. 
Because it's not a one-way street. It's both of us, like you said in the beginning, working together. It's a collaboration. And if one side isn't comfortable or isn't able to, then it's not going to work. So having that conversation. And it doesn't have to be, it's nothing, it doesn't doesn't have to be about them or about you. It may just not be the best fit for any number of reasons. And that's perfectly okay. I also think it's important for your therapist to be asking you on a regular basis, how do you think this is going? And soliciting feedback. If and, and so, and therapists um, should be encouraged to solicit that feedback. Make sure that this is uh, that we're on track. That this is working for you. That you're getting out of this what you had hoped, um, and not being afraid to speak up. Yes, exactly. Because again, it's a collaboration. You both should be checking in, asking your therapist, what can I do to prepare? Like you said, and the therapist asking you, how do you feel this is going? Is there, are you comfortable? Do you feel like you're getting a lot of it out of it? Are there things that you wish were happening different? And both of you being open and honest, because without Mm -hmm. that honesty, nothing is going to change and you might not get out of it what you want. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we first spoke, we also discussed about that misconception that therapy can't be harmful. And it can be in different ways. So what are some of those red flags to look out for? I think this is an important conversation. Um, so I'm glad that you're bringing it up. There is an under, like an assumption that, that, um, that therapy, any, any type of therapy is more helpful than none. And I don't think that that's necessarily true. Um, Therapy can range from being effective, and we would want for it to be effective, to ineffective, which is, you know, it's, it's, it, it was, uh, what, what I hear people say is, um, it was fine, <laughs> like, it was, you know, they were nice, you know, and I, you know, I enjoyed talking with them, but when I follow up and ask, what did you get out of that, what did you learn, what did you take away, what were the skills that you were working on, People are sometimes, um, they're not sure. They're not sure what they took away. They're not sure what they got out of it. And although it was, they have a, they had a, they thought it was um, nice and, and helpful to talk. They didn't come away with any transferable skills or actionable changes in their life. And we want to be able to help people make change in their life and sustain those change. That's the point of coming to therapy. And at the other end is harmful therapy, therapy that does more harm than good. So it ranges from good to sort of neutral and in between to to harmful. And it happens infrequently. Um, And I think we consider harm in terms of like the ethical violations that occur, uh, fortunately, like infrequently, but they do occur, to just not having an adequate skill set to deal with some specific types of clinical presentations that require some specialized training. And these would include things like OCD, trauma, addiction issues, eating disorder uh, symptoms, and oh, even things like psychosis or sexual abuse. There are some very specialized types of treatments that you would want your provider to be qualified to offer. Um, And if not, you do run the risk of, of causing some harm. The other piece that I think about when I think about harm necessarily is that bad experiences uh, generate bad experiences. So if you um, seek uh, some therapy 
and it doesn't go well, you know, you're less likely to seek it out again. And you're also probably telling your friends and maybe your loved ones and family members about your bad experience, which also may discourage them from seeking help or seeking therapy at some point, but has a ripple effect in that direction. And I think that that's harmful. It is so harmful when we are bashing on our experience and we are telling other people that therapy doesn't work because it didn't work for us. It is so harmful when we have that bad experience and we think, well, therapy doesn't work. And then we kind of give up on any kind of treatment for ourselves and we give up on ourselves completely. Mm-hmm. And then going back to what you said is not knowing what you're getting out of therapy. A lot of times we believe that the goal is just to feel better and mm-hmm. we don't have any actual goal for therapy. So what are some examples of goals that people set for therapy and ways you may go about trying to set one for yourself? I, would, I love this. I would love to talk about goals because I, I do ask people like, what are, what are you hoping to get out of it? And sometimes people just aren't sure, especially if you've never done it before or talked with anybody who's done therapy. It's hard to know, well, what exactly am I supposed to be getting out of it? I also think the, it, it raises the importance of talking with other people about the therapy you're getting, which is something we don't do enough of. We're, we're not, we, that's part of normalizing the conversation. And I think that's one of the ways to prevent harm is talking about what are you working on in therapy and what is your therapist like? Because it will become more obvious if something's um, amiss. <laughs> if you're talking about it with other people and you're like, they did what? They said, what? Wait, I'm not, I'm not sure what's happening. And you get that feedback, which I think is helpful. So I would rather have people talk about it than not talk about it and to not be ashamed to talk about it. Goals for therapy, when I think about goals, so most people want to feel better, which is great. Okay. It's just not very specific. And so I would want for people to get as specific as they can about what they'd like to get out of this time we're going to spend together. And so if you were feeling better, what would you be doing differently? That's how I would reframe the question. So if you were feeling better, what would you be doing that you're not doing now? And the doing part is really important because it becomes um, a behavior. It's It's a behavioral goal. It's something we can see ourselves do as opposed to an internal goal that nobody can see. So, um, and then it's better and easier to measure and track over time. So that could be, I would be going out more. I would be spending more time with friends. I would be going to the gym more. I would be um, um, having more um, in-depth conversations with people. I would be opening up more. I think some other reasonable goals are things like uh, communication skills. I'd I'd like to be able to communicate better. I'd like to be able to manage my anxiety better, uh, manage any of my symptoms better. those are some good ones. I, that's typically how I would um, ask somebody to consider what their goals are. Can you turn it into a, like a behavior in that, a way that you would be doing something differently? That is amazing because when it's measurable and you can see it, it's so much easier to see what you're getting out of therapy and understand that, okay, I'm actually progressing because a lot of times we can't see the progression. And if it's all internal and we can't see it and it's just small things adding up every day, but we're not recognizing it, 
we start to feel helpless again and hopeless. And it just is devastating. So having an actual tangible goal to measure makes it so much easier to see how far we're getting. And if we're moving forward, if we're moving backwards, if we're stuck and what's actually happening and going back to having those conversations about what's happening in therapy. I know I've gone through therapy for years and my father will still call me after a therapy session and ask me like, how was it? What did you talk about? Did you Mm -hmm. feel like you got enough out of it? And sometimes there were therapists where I was like, you know what? I told him all about what I did this week. And he's like, okay, but then what was next? And I was Mm -hmm. like, well, nothing. That was just all the things I did during the week. He's like, but did you feel you have a step for next week? Or did you feel you have to figure that all out on your own? And being Mm -hmm. able to recognize that there was no guidance and a therapist is a great guide. And if you're not having that guidance, maybe that's not the right fit for you. But if my father didn't call me, ask me and bring up those questions, I would have had no idea because again, a lot of times we just think that a little bit of therapy is better than no therapy. Mm-hmm. Again, it, it does depend on the goals. It, it, and I think for some people, it is very helpful to just talk through what's happening in their life. But if the goal is to make change, then that's going to require um, that's some, something a little bit more actionable. And it's going to require work between those meetings. It's, it, and so that's an important, that's a really critical part of evidence-based treatment. Exactly. So before we wrap up, can you share three action items that someone who may be experiencing depression or symptoms of depression and they're interested in seeking help that they can do to start their recovery journey? Absolutely. Um, Okay. So one of the first and best ways to begin working on a depression or recovering from depression is to get activated. Right, so depression one is is it we feel underactivated, um, and so behavioral activation is uh, the gold standard treatment for uh, depression, for behavioral for a behavioral approach to treating depression. So, what does that mean? So, taking action is going the best way is going to be the best way to start feeling better. What kind of action? Well, I would contact your primary care physician and schedule an appointment. That's pretty easy to do. If you have a primary care physician, call their office and schedule an appointment to talk about how you're feeling. And they should be asking those questions as well, but that's a great place to start if you don't know where else to start. It is really, it can be very, very difficult to connect with a mental health professional right out the gate. So your primary care physician should be able to help you with that, to start there. The next would be to do a little research, to just, do a little bit of research on what are what do de- treatments for depression look like? What are they? What are the different types available? Just educate yourself a little bit and see if any of those sound like a good fit for you. And the other might be to think about your goals. Again, just what is it? What would I? What? How do I want to feel better? What? What would I like to be different about my life? It, it may be like, why do I believe I'm feeling this way? But more so, how would I like for things to be different? So you get a running start in thinking about and planning for your recovery and being an active participant in your treatment. Okay, those are amazing steps. 
And I really want to emphasize number one, because a lot of times we're afraid to tell our doctors about how we're feeling because we don't know what's going to happen. And there is this misconception that if you share symptoms or feelings of depression with your doctor, you're automatically going to be locked up in a psych ward. So people are afraid to be honest, but if you don't answer the questions, honestly, you they, you may not be connected with the right person and your primary care physician can offer you certain types of support and also help you find a mental health professional, give you a referral, give you recommendations. So it's not always that they're going to lock you up in a psych ward and people don't realize that. Right. And I think sometimes it's thought of, it's, it's sometimes considered an afterthought. So you might have a visit with your doctor and they might in an offhand kind of way, ask you about your mood or how you've been feeling. And the way that the questions are asked is important. The way that the questions are asked will predict whether or not somebody is honest with how they're, with, with, with how they're feeling or honest with their answer. So that's an, that's an important piece to consider from the provider side, but that it's okay to be honest and to not minimize if, if, if it's a problem, I mean, um, to get connected to the best care and to make it a priority. The visit is scheduled because this is the problem I'm having. It's not tacked on to another one. It's, it's that important. Exactly, exactly. Having these conversations and being honest about them is so important from when someone asks you, how are you? from asking yourself, how am I really, to when your doctor is checking in on you, to being mm-hmm. in a therapist's office. The key is being honest and open because that's how you can help yourself. That's how other people can provide you the support and guidance that you need. Without that, and to, not let, and to not let that be dismissed either. So yes. if, if, if what you're hoping to get out of that visit is a recommendation, a treatment recommendation or a referral, make sure that's what you leave with. Exactly. Don't be afraid to speak up. A lot of times we're afraid, but you deserve support. You deserve help. And what you're feeling is valid. A lot of times we feel so invalidated. And if someone kind of blows us off or dismisses us a little bit, we think it's all in our head. It is not all in your head. You deserve help. Please, Mm -hmm. please reach out. Dr. Natalie, you've been absolutely amazing today. So much knowledge, so much wisdom, so much guidance and help. Just thank you so much for being here and for sharing with us. Thank you so much for having me. 